Hello and let's go. It's always a real thrill for me to introduce this beautiful little lady. She's going to sing for you a number one country song she wrote and recorded. Titled Joshua, Miss Dunnett. Dolly Parton and such a great version of Joshua. I was just grinning from ear to ear. Welcome everyone to Curiouser and Curiouser on this day after July 4th. We thought it would be appropriate to take a little bit of a walk down into Dollywood, uh, not literally Dollywood, but into the person, the life, the music of Dolly Parton. Um, she represents in so many ways the best of what America is. And before we go any further, I wanted to play an interview um, 
which I think really sort of reveals who she is. Um, it's an interview of her with Barbara Walters, and I'm going to go ahead and play that. And uh, we can talk about it afterwards. But uh, it, it is very, very revealing, uh, both of who Dolly Parton is and actually also Barbara Walters. It goes on for about four minutes, but take a listen because I think it's going to set the stage and it's very appropriate for what we're going to be talking about today. Dolly, where I come from, what I have called you a hillbilly, if you had of, it would have been something very natural, but I would have probably kicked your shins or something. <laughs> no, actually. But when I think of you, Louise, am I thinking of your kind of people? I think you probably are. Uh, the people that grew up where I was were the ones that you would consider the little Abner people, Daisy May, and that sort of thing. They took that kind of uh, thing from people like us, but we were very proud people, people with a lot of class. It was country class, but it was a great deal of class. And uh, most of um, my people were not that educated, but they are very, very intelligent. Good common sense, horse sense, we called it. Darling, did you look like this when you were a kid? Not quite. I mean, you didn't have the, you didn't have the blonde wig. But when no. you went to school, when you were 11, 12, 13, was it this about you? Well, you mean uh, the full uh, figure? <laughs> when went to school, when you were... 11, 12, 13. Was it this about you? Well, you mean uh, the full uh, figure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, I thought that's what you meant. Well, actually, I've always been pretty well blessed. Uh, as a child, I grew up fast. Uh, other members of my family, you know, have done the same. My assistant asked me something, and I'm going to blame it on her because I wouldn't have had the nerve otherwise. Is it all you? <laughs> well, I can't show you here. I don't tell you. I'll well, take your word for it. I get asked that question. I always answer that because people are in awe of the whole thing. You know, a lot of people say I have. A lot of people say I have. It. I always say that if I hadn't have had it on my own, I'm just the kind of person that would have had this made. You don't have to look like this. You're very beautiful. You don't have to wear the blonde wigs. You don't have to wear the extreme clothes, right? No, it's a, it's certainly a choice. I don't like to be like everybody else. I've often made this statement that I would never stoop so low as to be fashionable. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. So I just decided that I would do something that would at least get the attention. Once they got past the shock of the ridiculous way I looked and all that, then they would see there was parts of me to be appreciated. I'm very real where it counts and that's inside and as far as my outlook on life and the way I care about people and the way I care about myself and the things that I care about. But I just chose to do this and it's show business is a money making joke and I just always like telling jokes. <laughs> but do you ever feel that you're a joke? That people make fun of you? Oh I know they make fun of me but actually all these years the people, you know, has, has thought the joke was on me, but it's actually been on the public. I know exactly what I'm doing, and I can change it at any time. Or I make more jokes about myself than, than anybody. Because I enjoy, I know, like I say, I am sure of myself as a person. I'm sure of my talent. And to me, and I'm sure of, of my love and for life and that sort of thing, I'm very content. I like the kind of person that I am. So I can afford to piddle around and do diddle around with makeups and clothes and stuff because I am secure with uh, myself. 
Listen, tell me about this marriage of yours, this man whom nobody ever seems to see. We heard that he was here. We heard that he was in town, but none of us have seen him. Carl Dean, mm -hmm. you don't see him very much. You're on the road most of the time. You've said, I know that this marriage will always last. This man gives me everything I need. How do you know? Well, I need freedom. The man gives me freedom. So why and get married? With, well, why not? Why? I mean, if well, what you want most is freedom, why have a husband have to wait someplace to see six weeks a year? But he has the same freedom. See, the thing of it is, you don't find a person that you can be happy with and that can accept you the way you are and can share the things and the plan for the future and to enjoy your home. We have our foundation. We have our roots. We have all the things that everybody's looking for, and that's happiness in a marriage. I've got better things to do than to sit around in my room thinking, oh, what's Carl doing tonight? I wonder if he's with somebody and this and that. It's hard to... That was an extraordinary interview. I think that it revealed so much about who this person is. And I think in the process of uh, Barbara Walters really, you know, taking aim at her, really, I mean, the questions that she asked, I think people would be very triggered and inferior from triggered to infuriated with today. Uh, but she just, I mean, she won in such a big way self-deprecating, clearly hardworking, down-to-earth, sincere. Uh, she shows herself as persistent, uh, somebody that's mature, that is above the brouhaha, which is uh, what we're calling Barbara Walters tonight. Um, and in so many ways sort of represents those values that we think of or we want to think of as American. Um, and at the very least, you keep, listen to that interview. I mean, I played it. I thought it was so important because it was so revealing of who this woman actually is under pressure when she's being questioned about the way that she looks, uh, about her marriage, uh, about her talent, why be married anyway, by somebody that was considered sort of the foremost interviewer of that time. And she never loses her cool and she is graceful, but she gives it back to her. And it's funny because I uh, was um, playing that interview off of YouTube and it's very funny. The first comment is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's called professional jealousy. And I thought that was very telling. So I first wanted to jump into uh, an introduction about Dolly and how she introduces herself. And this comes from her book. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole introduction, but this is how she describes herself. My name is Dolly Parton, and I am a songwriter. This is how I express myself in a song. I can go anywhere and do anything. As a songwriter, I'm influenced by everything around me, by the people around me, by the feelings of people I know, and by my own joys and sorrows. In my songs, I've touched on a whole lot of subjects. I've put so many songs out there, and they are for anybody who wants to listen. I write a lot from my heart, but I also just have a big imagination. When I was young, we didn't go to the movies, so I just created my own stories. It's kind of embedded in me to make up songs and stories. I'd read something in a book or hear something and think, what would happen next? What kind of story would that turn out to be? And ever since... I was a small child. I have had the gift to rhyme things. I decided to call my book Song Teller because that pretty much sums me up. I love songs. I love to tell stories. And most of all, I just love to write. It's just who I am. I am a song teller. I have often said that my songs are my children and that I expect them to support me when I'm old. 
Well, I'm old and they are, but I do take my songwriting seriously. I'm so proud that I'm able to write. I know there are many songwriters in this world who are much greater than I am, but I know for a fact that no writer in this world enjoys it more than me. At the end of the day, I hope that I will be remembered as a good songwriter. These songs are my legacy. I think it is extraordinary that you have this woman that was born in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee in an extremely rural place, um, 12 children, uh, no indoor plumbing, no electricity. Um, they were so poor uh, that these kids sometimes would sleep three to four to a bed and pee on each other to keep each other warm comes from that kind of background at a time when women were not welcome in many things, but certainly not in country music, and just had the confidence and the spunk to just sort of go after it. Um, and you see that she has not lost her sense of self-respect. She jokes a lot. And I mean, her quotes are like among, they rank up there among the best in the world. Uh, her quotes are always insightful and they're really homespun um, and very, very insightful and useful when you're in a tight place. But they also point to a sense of humor and, uh, you know, really like deep self-deprecation uh, and uh, respect for the craft, but she knows exactly who she is and she is not afraid to say it. But she does it without insulting the other person. And that's why I thought it was really sort of telling and important to play that Barbara Walters interview because we would all hope that we come across that way. And certainly if you have children, you would hope that your kids would handle yourself that way, uh, you know, sort of giving it back, but without, you would never be able to say she was rude or impolite and always with a smile on her face and never stooping down to sort of the same level. But when you think about who this person ended up growing up to be, uh, this is a woman that uh, won 11 Grammys, nominated for 50. Uh, she had 25 songs on the Billboard country charts, uh, 44 top 10 country albums, composed over 3,000 songs, um, and uh, some of them that were you know, very famous, I Will Always Love You, which of course was made famous uh, to most of America uh, with Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard, 9 to 5, which was something that came up when I was growing up. And I certainly remember that movie being little and, and that movie being out, Jolene. She also moved into acting. Uh, she was an actress in uh, multiple movies, Steve, Steel Magnolias, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, uh, Nine to Five, and many others. She's also won 10 Country Music Association Awards, four People Choice Awards. She's had a, a nomination from the Academy Awards. Um, and I think she is uh, one of the only people in history that had, I believe, one nom at least from the Academy Awards, the Grammys, the Tonys, and the Emmys. Oh, also three American Music Awards. Um, I think in 19, uh, sorry, in 2022, she was nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She declined it um, and then she accepted it afterwards. Um, you know, I had, uh, I think she also has, uh, I will say, I think two Guinness World Records um, for the most top 20 hits uh, of the hot country uh, charts uh, for the Billboard Hot Country charts. She's been writing songs for 60 years. She's got a theme park called Dollywood, um, plays 
10 instruments. Um, and again, when you go back and look at the roots of this person, it seems that she hasn't changed an iota. She spent 60 years songwriting. Um, and so I believe she's in her seventies. I need to change. I need to double check what her age is, but you see, she's still that sweet old girl. I guess they call them steel magnolias in the South that, uh, deals with everything that's thrown at her, but still has that persistence, knows her talent and doesn't give up. I think it's interesting to look a little bit at her childhood. Um, you know, as I mentioned, she came out of a background of uh, really abject poverty. Her father was illiterate and had to work many different jobs. Uh, and literally, that is what they saw uh, around them. Uh, they had a country doctor that would come by and deliver folks. And there were, uh, I think, six of her siblings were delivered by this doctor. And then six of them were born in a hospital. But that was very normal. And she talks about times where the country doctor would go around, you know, would be called if somebody was very sick or there was a baby that uh, needed some extra help because a lot of times these babies are delivered without medical help. Remember, this is America, right? And so many of us are listening from cities ostensibly with indoor plumbing uh, and electricity. So it's kind of hard to even think that there were places like this or that there are places like this still, um, not just in urban centers, but in our, uh, you know, in the heartland, in rural areas of this country. And so growing up like that, she talks about the, the doctor coming in and, uh, doing his rounds and how, some people would be standing there with a gun on the doctor as he was delivering the baby or, uh, you know, saying, Hey, you mess up my wife's arm and I, I will blow your brains out right here. So you can imagine it was sort of the wild west of Appalachia. And so she grew up in this sort of environment. And yet, you know, you see in our world today, we think about how fragile people are and how upset they get at the smallest things and the whole sort of, prize for participation culture. And you look back at the way that somebody like this grew up uh, without it affecting her in a way that today we would probably characterize as being sort of, um, uh, you know, grounds for having PTSD. And, you know, if you didn't recover, no one would blame you. My God, you grew up this way. And yet, when she speaks, it's all smiles and light. And she's taken all of that emotion, the, uh, the experiences that she had growing up in these rural places and translated them into some of the most beautiful, beautiful songs. Um, and her songs are about everything. Uh, they're about her abilities. They're about the way that she grew up. They're about men. They're about women. I think one of the interesting things is she says, and I, I love this. She says, I don't, call myself a feminist. You will never find me marching out there or holding up a sign. Uh, but I do, I will stand up for it where it matters. And you can certainly see she did this throughout her career. One case in point is, um, I believe it was the song, I Will Always Love You. Um, I think Elvis wanted to sing it and uh, she declined. And I think that there were opportunities uh, for that song uh, to go in a different direction. And she held on to it, even though it wasn't particularly clear that anything would come of it but because she had great confidence in herself. Um, and so she definitely stood up for herself and certainly became she, before she became sort of Dolly Parton, the solo artist, uh, she had a partner who she worked with. And, uh, you know, they had lots of sort of 
fights and heads to heads. And she said, I probably wasn't very easy to work with, but it certainly shows you the kind of gumption that she had. Um, this was a woman that wrote her first songs as a toddler. And by the age of eight, uh, she was appearing, um, uh, on, uh, entertaining by the age of eight, I should say. And by 10, she was appearing on TV and radio. Uh, and she really kind of launched her recording career at 13 when she appeared at the Grand Ole Opry. So it's really extraordinary when you think about it, right? No TV, no phone, no car, uh, no kind of mode of transportation. They had a battery powered radio. Electrification had not even arrived in that part of Tennessee. Um, and as I said, you know, she grew up with, uh, unskilled, Ill illiterate, you know, laborer and substance farmer father who she respected and said was one of the finest men, uh, to this day and that he, you you know, one of the beautiful things of this story is that he lived to see her success, which is very heartwarming. And, uh, you know, their food, their clothes, their toys, all this stuff was homemade. Um, and so she grew up and some of her first songs uh, were about kind of these experiences. Um, one of her first songs was about a, it was called Little Tiny Tassel Top. And it was written about a corn cob doll. Uh, she wrote it by the age of six because her mother had encouraged her to write songs. Uh, and she writes because, you know, and I, I was a big fan of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Little House on the Prairie books. And um, they had very similar experiences of making things out of found items, right? Because you didn't have a lot of things then. And necessity is the mother of invention. Um, and so she's got pictures in her book of these corn cob dolls, which literally just look like a corn cob that you know, they would make like, they would take a charred stick and make little black eyes and use some of the, you know, the silk from the corn to make like blonde hair for the corn cob. Um, and uh, she was so happy with that doll and talks about like just the hours of sort of entertainment that she got. And and she clearly, it was something that was so embedded uh, in her sort of memory and how she thinks about her upbringing. She wrote that song about it. Um, and so the Smoky Mountain DNA really kind of never sort of, uh, you know, was something that kind of stayed with her throughout and shows up again and again in her songs, in the way that she talks about herself and how she views herself. Um, you know, she was self-taught, uh, so worked with old instruments with busted strings and practiced till she had blisters and calluses. Um, until her fingers hurt. And she had musical uncles and aunts, and they would encourage her as well. And so one of the things that you see in her story uh, is that she had family that was very encouraging of her talents uh, and for her to sort of pursue this this, you know, this song that she had in her heart, literally and figuratively to pursue music. Um, it's interesting when I was reading her story, um, you know, there's this great book, which I really recommend. It's not that expensive. It's about 30 to $40 on Amazon. And I bought it when it first came out about two years ago. It's what I read the introduction for you from called Storyteller. Um, it was really interesting to, you know, read about her background, but I was really struck at how much it reminded me of um, 
to modern day queens, Venus and Serena Williams. Um, her background really seemed to mirror them in so many different ways. Although, you know, they clearly grew up in an urban center. She grew up, you know, in the Smoky Mountains at a different time. They're kind of more modern. They were two sisters. She's one of 14 and kind of the only one that made it alone. They're kind of more physical prowess. She's sort of like more of the, the, you know, of your soul, the singing artistic. Um, but they both had parents that were willing to kind of, you know, encourage everything and they would make do with what they did, right? They didn't have the best equipment or the best coaches or the best anything. Uh, there are lots of stories of how Dick Williams used to take those two girls out onto the court that was scattered with glass and nails and, you know, give them balls that had lost the balance and rackets that weren't, you know, that were losing their, their flex and weren't strung properly. And this is how they would practice to become champions. And so it, I really heard that sort of resonance in her story. Um, one of the stories that Dolly is so famous for, and if you're a fan of her music, you probably know this song, is about the coat of many colors, which is a biblical story. Uh, but in her particular case, she had written that song, um, not only because she was inspired spiritually, but because she literally had a coat of many colors. And there's a picture of it um, in the storyteller book. Um, it is a coat that her mother made for her, um, sort of like a patchwork coat. And as you probably remember, I just mentioned that all of these, these kids had homemade things and didn't have heat, didn't have electricity. We're like literally peeing in bed to keep each other warm and then going to school peed on. Whole nother story, but that's how poor they were. Um, but she, her mother gave her this coat that she thought was beautiful and she wore it to school and, um, course, the kids bullied her, totally made fun of her. They locked her into a closet. Uh, she was very traumatized. I think that's something if anybody, uh, I know I certainly relate, uh, you know, about being bullied and it was something that really sort of touched me, but it was something that stayed with her. And she went home and uh, got mad at her mother and said, Mama, you lied. You told me this coat looked good and that I should be proud of it because Joseph wore a coat like that. And again, we can all relate, right? Of for the first time realizing maybe your parents are fallible, that they told you something that didn't come through. And I, I'll make a little segue. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Dolly is one of these people that has, you know, extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary relatability. Um, I don't care where you're from. If you're not a country music fan, if you're not a Dolly Parton fan, when you hear her and speak to her, you want to be around people like that. But then so much of her experience, it's down to earth. It's relatable. We've all been in positions like that. She talks to you about it. She doesn't come at you from being a person that is a has won a Grammy award. You feel like you could sit down and joke with her and have a beard with her. And it's sincere. And I think that's one of the things that is so, so superlative about her. But anyway, she comes home and starts, you know, telling her, mom, you know, you lied. You told me that this coat uh, was going to make me special. And her mother said, you know, it's okay, you know, that you're different and difference is okay. And the coat is special. And she said that that pacified her and she accepted that. Um, and that in that moment, she also realized what good parents that she had. Um, 
And she talks about, you know, the home that she grew up in. And it's funny, the 1973 album, uh, My Tennessee Mountain Home, actually has a picture of that house, the shack that all those kids grew up in, which is funny if you've been, if you've traveled anywhere in the world, you know that uh, that kind of house actually looks like a mansion compared to places in slums. But nevertheless, comparatively speaking, in the United States, to have that kind of house uh, puts you into sort of abject poverty and particularly with, without all of the sort of modern uh, conveniences that you have and, you know, a father that was struggling to support them. Uh, but a shrewd man who knew how to make something out of nothing. And that is also something that she talks about her, no matter how parents, how humble uh, and poor her parents were, she says she had a great deal of admiration and respect for them. Her father himself grew up in a family of about 15 kids and was deeply ashamed of being illiterate. Uh, all of the children had to work to support the family. Um, and eventually, you know, that sort of pain that her father carried around, uh, Dolly actually, who's a very, very charitable person, uh, ended up starting what's called an imagination library to bring books and reading to these rural communities. Uh, that really sort of inspired her uh, to do that. And she's written songs about that. And she often says she was so happy to see that her father lived to see some of the success. Um, and so I think these are like all wonderful stories. When she was born at home, they were paid, they paid the doctor by cornmeal. Uh, and, you know, her parents, these are all such typical kind of Appalachian stories. Her mom or dad got married at 15 and 17. Uh, and, you know, they really sort of slept dressed, got up uh, when the snow came in, they were in trouble. Uh, they had to kind of make their shoes do. And there's also a wonderful book uh, called The Glass Castle, if anybody has heard of it, by Jeanette Walls, which uh, is more of a modern kind of retelling of growing up in Appalachia. And it's funny because if you know that book, and I sort of know that book inside and out because I would listen to it going to sleep. Um, she talks about many of the same kind of conditions in growing up, you know, bare feet, clothes that didn't fit you, patched up, being made fun of at school, bullied, you know, dirty, not able to take a shower. Um, but when you really think about it, this in many ways is also our heartland. It's where so much innovation came from. I, you can look at the Rust Belt, the Sun Belt, um, the Midwest and these places where people are humble and hard work. There's no way out but hard work, right? There's no nepotism. Uh, nobody is going to give you anything. I mean, she's clearly attractive, but nobody's going to do you any favors because of that. They might take advantage of you for those reasons. And so this makes her story all the more extraordinary. So before we move on, I want to play you that beautiful song, uh, which refers to the coat of many colors. Um, because it's, it's a famous one and, uh, it's a beautiful song. So I'm going to go ahead and play that for you guys. Back through the years, I go wandering once again. Back to the seasons of my youth. I recall a box of rags that someone gave us. And how my mama put the rags to use There were rags of many colors 
every piece was small and i didn't have a coat and it was way down in the fall mama sewed the rags together so in every piece we loved she made my coat of many colors that i was so proud of as she sewed she told a story from the bible she had read about a coat of many colors joseph wore and then she said perhaps this coat will bring you good luck and happiness and i just couldn't wait to wear it and mama blessed it with kids my coat of many colors that my mama made for me made only from rags but i wore it so Although we had no money, why was rich as I could be? In my coat of many colors, my mama made for me. So with patches on my britches, and holes in both my shoes, in my coat of many colors, I hurried off to school just to find the others laughing at a making fun of me in my coat of many colors my mama made for me. And oh, I couldn't understand it, for I felt I was rich. And I told them all the love my mama sewed in every stitch. And I told them all the story, mama told me why she sewed and how my coat of many colors was worth more than all their clothes. But they didn't understand it, and I tried to make them see. One is only poor, only if they choose to be. Now I know we had no money, but I was rich as I could be. In my coat of many colors, my mama made for me, made just for me. Such a moving song. Um, I actually get choked up listening to it because you can just hear the the emotion and the sincerity and the lived experience behind it um and you know she says this this is a quote um she says i suffer a lot because i'm open to so much i hurt a lot and when i hurt it's all over because i can't harden my heart to protect myself i always say that i strengthen the muscles around my heart but I can't harden it. And you hear so many artists express similar sentiments. And it is one of the things that makes her so popular, so universal, um, and so iconic. She sings a kind of soul music, number one, and she's relatable. Um, and I keep saying this because it is that, you know, because I'm trying to think, why is it that so many people connect with this woman? Um, clearly she's a very gifted songwriter and a great musician and she's a great story and she's funny to look at. And she says, uh, you know, lots of really interesting little pithy things that actually there's deep wisdom in them, but it's really just about how relatable it's one soul speaking to another. And you feel that even though she's a celebrity and you're not, um, and, uh, you know, to, 
sort of move a little bit into kind of her personal life. You know, she married a gentleman named Carl Dean, who pretty much is absent. And as you heard in the beginning interview, Barbara Walters was sort of poking at her like that. Uh, well, he's never seen. And uh, they got married when they were quite young. It's, he's the love of her life. Uh, they've been married for 54 years. And he is somebody that stays in the background. Um, they got married in 1966. And he uh, was is very surprised supportive of her and her songwriting success. And obviously she's a big personality. Uh, and they met, I think, in Nashville when she moved there. And, um, you know, uh, Dolly had actually had a boyfriend back at home, but, uh, you know, they ended up getting married. And it's funny, she tells this story. Um, she right. She wrote a song about it as well, about at one point after they were married, uh, Carl asked her, you know, have you been with anybody else? And he had not. And she had to say, oh, yeah, I have. And she said it caused, uh, she says they never fight and they never have crosswords with her. She said, we'll go into each other's, you know, we'll go, we'll have like a disagreement and go off into corners, but we'll get over it. Um, it's never a fight or an argument. And she said, of course, he kind of like went to his corner and sort of licked his wounds for, uh, you know, uh, uh, a couple of days. But, um, you know, she said that she didn't want to be dishonest and she didn't want to enter her marriage being dishonest and lying about that. Um, and so they seem to have had what is a very unusual and strong and really uh, kind of extraordinary kind of model of a relationship because he was so supportive, um, is, I should say is, these people are all alive, so you. So they're all, they're all here with us, thank God. Um, but he is so supportive of her, but he just, he went to, I think, one award ceremony with her, um, and basically said, um, I think it was, I, I don't know if it was the Billboard Awards or something. It was way back in the past when she was a young artist and he hated them and said, I will never go with you to another one of these award ceremonies. I don't know if you could imagine what sort of strife that would cause in a relationship today on either side. And uh, if the other side would have the flexibility and the accommodation and forgiveness, which is really what you need to make a relationship work, people, which is what I always say. It's not really about like, he's so good looking or, you know, she went to Columbia. At the end of the day, it's the commitment to each other. It is the common things that you're going to have to tackle, which are not so much fun. Who's taking the kids to school? Who's going to do this? It's giving each other space. And again, when you think about their marriage, it seems like a great model. Um, you know, these people clearly have given each other a lot of room and are together as tight as can be. She talks about, you know, we spend time together and, and clearly she's the breadwinner, obviously. Uh, that's probably not easy for any man, but particularly a man from that time coming from kind of the, uh, the, the South, you know, and, and yet, they have this phenomenal marriage. He's never to be seen anywhere. He shows up occasionally. There's a picture of him on one of her albums. I think it's one of the only few pictures of him uh, that she has publicized. I mean, there are pictures of him on the internet, but uh, that she has actually put out commercially. Um, but she talks about how 
they end up taking time off and uh, in their, you know, they take a, they have a trailer home and they just go places. They travel to different places in the South and stop by and eat food and go to fairs. And that's what they like doing. And they spend time together in their off time, but he is not one for the spotlight. And uh, again, when I think about the configuration of that relationship, it is extraordinary. And I think to myself, my goodness, we should all be so lucky on both sides. For somebody to have the freedom to say, I love you, I support you, you know, even if you're out shining me, et cetera, et cetera, all that unsaid stuff. But I really can't take being, you know, at the Billboard Music Awards and I don't like this Hollywood stuff and I'm not going to do it, but I will support you 150%. And for the other person to accept that and say, that's fine. Um, I, you know, I, this is too much of a driving thing in my life and I'm not going to stop this because you can't be with me at an award show. And I think that's, I think it's almost a perfect relationship that to give that, to have that give and take, which I feel like is missing in so many relationships. So Dolly has this husband that's obviously very supportive and in the background. But uh, what do we think of when we think of Dolly Parton? Well, I know what I thought of when I saw her as a child. I thought, wow, big boobs, big hair, blonde hair, and lots of makeup. And uh, we're going to get to her quotes, but one of uh, her best quotes, which uh uh, I think is worthy of getting a tattoo of is, uh, honey, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. She is always self-deprecating. She is always kind of poking tongue in cheek, uh, you know, uh, about her looks. She says, I'm not offended by dumb blonde jokes because I know I'm not dumb and I know I'm not a blonde. And she says, you know, I'm not going to commit myself just because people won't accept the fact that I can do something else. She said, I'm sorry. She said, I'm not going to limit myself just because people won't accept the fact that I can do something else. And, uh, she, you know, the, she says, it's a good thing I was born as a girl. Otherwise I'd probably be a drag queen. Um, she says, I walk tall. I got a tall attitude. And she says, I was always a junk food person. I still am. And she says, if I can get my dress on, my weight is under control. And she says, I try not to go around looking like a hag. She says, I just don't have time to get hold. old. My husband says I look like a Q-tip. Children have always responded to me because I have a cartoon character look. I love Velveeta cheese. A rhinestone shines as good as a diamond. The magic is inside you. There ain't no crystal ball. She has millions of these. And again, I think these quotes, it says something that they've kind of gone down into the national consciousness as like American wisdom because they are. Um, but her look is something that people talk about a lot and it's much commented on. And as Barbara Walters pointed, she said, are your mm, tatas real? And she said, well, they are. And I was blessed. I don't know if you heard. It was just the funniest. If you haven't, you need to go back and listen to the interview. She goes, well, I was blessed and I became mature, uh, young. And again, handle it with such grace. But the funny part is she says, but if I wasn't, I probably would have gone and, you know, gotten them done. And so she gives it back ton in cheek. And it's just such 
class. And people can say she's not classy. She looks trashy. I'm sorry. I think that woman is the epitome of class and how she conducts herself. Somebody can look classy, but they can be a real trashy person. And we know that uh, from uh, our society today. And I think this woman, I don't think she looks trashy, but a lot of people will say that, you know, she's kind of out there, but she, I think she is the epitome of class. But her style is a definitive style, right? It's the big blonde wigs. It's the fake eyelashes. It's the bright lips. Um, you know, it's the form fitting dresses that are plunging that shows off her very ample, uh, bosom. Uh, you know, it's the rhinestones. It's the jewelry. It's the high heels. Um, and she often says that she modeled herself after the town tramp. Not because she was a tramp, not because she was aspiring to be a tramp, but uh, she says, you know, um, the town tramp where she was growing up, she didn't know that she was a prostitute, but she said, this lady was so beautiful. And as a child, I thought she was so gorgeous. And so I ended up just modeling my my entire look on her. And it's something that uh, I always just felt was um, just a really beautiful look. And clearly it's something that she never sort of let go. So she ended up having her clothes custom made, you know, flashy, shiny, colorful, and rhinestones. That was her own uh, quote. She said she couldn't get enough of color and gaudiness and flash. And then she loved wigs, the bigger, the better. She said she wanted to look like the pictures that she saw in the Fredericks of Hollywood catalogs. Um, and she said, I thought all movie stars felt this way. And so I don't know if anyone knows what the Fredericks of Hollywood catalog is, but I had seen it a few times when I was a kid. Uh, it didn't come to our home, but I had seen it. And it was literally, it was kind of like a more risque Victoria's Secret, I guess that was around the 70s or 80s. I didn't actually look up what the context was, but it is a lingerie. I don't know if it's, I, I'm guessing it's defunct because I have not seen it in quite a while, or at least uh, it hasn't come across my desk, but it was one of those more risque sort of lingerie uh uh, manufacturers. And so she thought that was just sort of the, the height of, uh, 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 sort of fashion. Um, and she is proud of her looks, right? She's come out and said, I never could stand anyone else's version of me. And she says, I will just pile on more makeup. Uh, and she goes, makeup makes everything good. And she just never kind of deviated from that more is more kind of ethos and was really her own person. And I think her sort of quote about how children were sort of drawn to that, I could see that. I think another uh, little funny story is uh, uh, when she moved into her old place, there was, uh, uh, she put, uh, it was Christmas and she likes celebrating Christmas. So she put a big old red light over her door and about a week later, one of her relatives, uh, she worked very closely with her uncle. Uncle came running over and said, Dala, you have got to remove that red light. Apparently, the sign for a house of prostitution was to have a big red light over the door. And she said, well, it didn't bother me none. And I would have left it up there. But, you know, after some thought, my uncle saying probably not the best move. Uh, she said, I decided to remove it. But here, too. You might look at her and go, look at this woman. She really looks like a vestige from another time before feminism. 
but she's the ultimate feminist, right? She's not afraid of what people think. She doesn't care that people are going to call her a tramp. She doesn't care that they don't think she is uh, not a great songwriter or worth the money. And those are other conversations that started to happen, right? That uh, she shouldn't be paid as much as, you know, the guys that were in the band because she started out with an ensemble and ensemble, sorry. And eventually she ended up kind of eclipsing them and ended up kind of breaking off, but still uh, working with the leader of that ensemble. I think Ronald Browner is his name. I'll get the name for you guys. But um, and he was a old friend of hers. And but they had lots of falling outs and coming back together. And she was at his side almost when he died, just days before he died and uh, had told him, you know, I have forgiven you for anything you've ever done with me. And I hope you will forgive me. I want you to go peacefully. I mean, to me, these are all signs of character, right? They show you what kind of human being this is. Um, and so when you look at who she is, uh, I think it says a lot. And she's often, you know, she's often said, uh, people say that I look fake, but I'm real. I'm real on the inside. Uh, and I think it's true. And there are very few people that can walk the talk. And I think that she is uh, sort of one of them. Um, you know, you would think that religion plays a large part in her life. And certainly uh, there are many spiritual and religious themes in her music. But, you know, she says, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not uh, religious. Um, but she, you know, she talks a lot about faith and about how the religion she finds is kind of in herself. Um, and there's a beautiful song called Paradise Road. I don't have it queued up for you guys, but I just wanted to read you a few of the lyrics because it is so sort of indicative of, again, who she is. And, um, you know, at this time she was sort of on her way and it really kind of it, 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 she's transparent, right? She she writes from her heart. And so here's sort of the first stanza of the song, Paradise Road. I grew up dirty and I grew up poor. The wolf didn't even hang around our door. Not a crumb to spare and the cupboard bare, but I had the gift of imagination. I could change my situation. Anytime I chose, I could always go down Paradise Road. I'm actually going to go ahead and read the, the next stanzas because it's so pretty. I found a kingdom deep within, a place to dream and to pretend and to prepare for the world out there. A dream can dress you when you're ragged, filling you up when hunger's nagging. I warmed my soul when life was cold on Paradise Road. Paradise is a state of mind. The sun shines warm and all the time and the rain don't flow and the wind don't blow on Paradise Road. A place no one can take from me, a place of everlasting peace, where dreamers go, it's never closed, Paradise Road. Paradise is a state of mind, down the road of life and time, and the friends we meet make the traveling sweet on Paradise Road. Sometimes now when the world is mad, I find that place I've always had. Inside my soul, it's paved in gold, Paradise Road. I grew up dirty and I grew up poor. The wolf didn't even hang around the door, not a crumb to spare and the cupboard bare, but I had a gift of imagination. I could change my situation. Anytime I chose, I could always go down Paradise Road. I think with so many of her songs, you see exactly who she is and where she comes from. 
Um, and I think that that was very attractive to many musicians. As I mentioned, I did check on the song and it was Elvis that wanted to uh, first sing, and I will always love you. And she uh, didn't want to give it to him because actually his manager uh, wanted to kind of screw her on the deal and get it for cheap. And she just like, that's nah, worth too much. Um, and I think that is something, again, as a woman that was coming up in country where there weren't many women, uh, was sort of a, a, a big deal. Um, you know, I talked about how she talks about, I'm not really a feminist, but uh, in the sense that I'm going to go marching or, and, and, and signs, but I do believe in women's rights and equal pay for women. Um, and she says the same thing, as I mentioned, about religion. Uh, she's written songs about Vietnam, and she says she's not political, but you can certainly hear in the songs that she's written her uh, sort of empathy and uh uh, uh, compassion for those that have gone off to war, to the families that are destroyed, to the boys that come home changed men or that somehow don't come home at all. Uh, and again, I think all of this makes her so incredibly relatable. Um, but I do want to quickly say the person that she became a star with, and I, sh you know, I should have given you his name, Arthur, was Porter Wagner. And Porter Wagner uh, had sort of a band, a little show, and she started off on playing on that show, and she re really became a star uh, on that show. But they fought like cats and dogs, uh, and eventually she ended up breaking off and, you know, becoming the Dolly Parton. Um, but, uh, uh, as I mentioned just days before he died, he remained, uh, connected with her throughout her career, uh, in various ways, uh, musically. And, uh, you know, they, I think he probably never got over the fact that you know, she got much bigger than him and left, but, uh, and again, very savvy woman, right? This is a woman that might look the way, like kind of like a cartoon character, she says, but she struck the right deals. She knew when it was time to go. She was like expanding and making herself into kind of a, a uh, you know, uh, a corporate entity with everything from, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dollywood to things that she was selling with her, uh, with the Dolly Parton mark on them, uh, and all of the charity. I mean, she gave away, I think it was a million dollars. Um, I want to just mention the charity because that is going to get lost. And I think it's important. She, um, gave away about, uh, $1,000 a month to families that lost their homes in forest fires of her, in her home state of Tennessee when there were terrible, terrible uh, wildfires that were happening. Uh, as I mentioned, she did start the Imagination Library in honor of her father, who was illiterate, uh, so that foster kids could learn to read. And uh, this, this program mails free books to children. Uh, uh, and, uh, starting from, I think they're five years old. Um, and she's called the book lady. These kids call her the book lady. Sometimes she shows up and reads these books. Um, and she gave a million dollars to COVID relief. Uh, and that was basically to fund, uh, promising vaccines. And she did this in 2020. And so this is also a woman that, is charitable, you know, never forgot sort of where she came from. Um, and she was very savvy, right? She started a music publishing company so that she could own her own publishing. It's called Opar Music. Uh, that was a, uh, 
I think it's called a diptych, a made up word uh, of her uh, mother's maiden name, Owens and Parton, Opar publishing to publish her songs. Uh, and so of course that came in handy when things like I will always love you or Jolene or nine to five or islands in a screen became uh, smashes, not just in the country world, but um you know, worldwide smashes, uh, smashes and, and also across genres, introducing her to pop and rock. And she, she said that she would never do rap, but I know somewhere in my notes, uh, I think she collaborated with somebody that's a rapper. And she said, oh, I don't know if I would ever do rap, but I'd be open to it, which is so sort of jolly. Um, but, uh, you know, just like reading over my notes about why she left Porter and uh, she really, she left because she ended up having all the top solo hits uh, with the, uh, while she was with uh, Porter. And I think at that point she just thought, you know, I think it's time to go. Um, and speaking of her activism, she wrote a song for the movie Trans America, uh, which was one of those early movies about uh, that had a, you know, a transsexual as the main character. Um, and I, I remember this. Um, one of the interesting things is, you know, she never had children. And she comes across as modern in so many ways. Her marriage, her sort of unwillingness to back down. The one thing that isn't modern about her, she does it in such a sweet way. And, you know, I just wish that people would be more like that. Like you can say, you can say things um, that are unpleasant without being unpleasant. And she just comes off like a million bucks. And again, if you did not hear the Barbara Walters interview that I played at the beginning, go back and listen to it. Because if you really listen to what Barbara is saying, it's insulting. And uh, she's asking question after question about the way that she looks, uh, her marital status, like why nobody sees the husband and uh, why be married anyway. And really kind of asking, uh, you know, uh, Questions that I think would be uh, kind of like get you uh, sort of canceled uh, from ever having an interview with the subject again, but she handles them with such grace. Um, and so you see that she's somebody that is an activist without having to say that she's an activist. She's strong without having to say that she's strong. She is shrewd and negotiates her, for herself without losing her femininity or sweetness, and no one would ever say she's a tough broad. But the truth is, when you look at the substance, She's a tough broad. Um, you know, I mentioned she had 12 brothers and sisters. Um, her younger sister, Stella, also became a successful music artist. And she employed lots of her family. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when you think about the themes of family, she wrote, you know, I'm going to read this because this is something that personally was important to me. Um, she wrote a book about old people's homes. And uh, I think the lyrics, and I think it was really about her sadness about uh, essentially the warehousing of our elderly. And, um, you know, I think anybody that has grown up in a house, uh, particularly uh, an Asian immigrant household, uh, there is sort of the concept of joint families and being with your, uh, you know, parents and taking care of relatives as much as you can and living together and all that. And so I certainly grew up in that kind of family. And so I always, uh, you know, would look at kind of um, 
these elderly homes and just go, oh my God, you know, it is sort of heartbreaking that these people are kind of all put together in this home, kept away from their families um, and just warehouse. And then, you know, society's for the young and we have this, this sort of uh, obsession with youth. And I was so shocked to find this song called that she wrote called The House of Shame in 1969. And I want to read it. Um, she, she says, this is what she says about it. Who writes about old folks' homes? Well, I do, because I, I can relate to that situation. I see what it's like for older people. You hope that the people you love are always going to get taken care of, but it doesn't always happen that way. And now I'm old enough to be in one. Maybe I was thinking ahead when I was writing this back then, but I write about everything. Is there anything in the world that I haven't written about? I don't think so. And if there is, I'm going to. And when I read that, I had tears in my eyes. I thought, to me, that is, you know, those are my values. And I think those are the best of American values. And I thought, this woman, I've got, you know, I was just like, well, I could do like hours and hours of a show on her. Um, but I want to read you a few of the lyrics. House of Shame, which came out in 1969. There's nothing unusual about the way that my day begins. As I walk up and down the streets with my mail pouch in my hands, I've run this route for years. Everybody knows my name, especially at the old folks' home, which I call the house of shame. The old folks' home is my last stop. That's where I end my daily route. And my mail pouch is usually empty by then. Not always, but just about. Except for an occasional letter, and they all wait anxiously, with sad eyes that ask the question, is there anything for me? And I hear the trembling voices as they talk back and forth. I guess the children, they're just too busy to write. They've got a lot of things to do, of course. And I try to cheer them up and say things to make them feel better. And I think to myself just how little effort it takes to write a letter. They're old and wrinkled faces and hair as white as snow and memories locked up in their minds that only they could know. I spend many hours there at the end of each day's run, trying in some way to fill the place of a daughter or a son. And I listen as they tell me of their families of days gone by. And the sadness there at times is so great, I can't help but cry. And though it's reality, it seems more like a dream that some of, their grand, some of them have grandchildren that they've never seen. And I think it's such a shame that children they have raised would put them in this house of shame to spend their better days. So they sit there just waiting, waiting for letters they never get, waiting for children that never come by, waiting, just waiting to die. You see, my old folks, my folks are old now too, and we put them in a home, but the difference is they live with us and they'll never be alone. To me, that is, it. it's so touching. I got choked up when I was reading it because it's just one of these things. I often think about sort of my own story and I was telling my mother, I'm probably sort of the last generation that everybody fighting to want to have the grandmother live with them, you know, and you see this in ethnic household, Greeks and Indians, maybe Chinese. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the grandmother lives with you. And in our case, our grandmother was, our living grandmother was so helpful and lovely and a fount of information and wisdom and energies of our back. And I could never imagine her not being with family. And, um, 
I think when I saw this, I was so, so deeply touched because I was shocked that this was coming from, you know, what you would consider a typical American from the middle of America. Um, and I thought, my God, and this is actually our values in this country too. So, um, again, it's just how touching is this? Um, as you might have guessed, uh, Dolly has a huge gay following. Uh, they all love her and she always talks about how she looks like a drag queen. She, uh, had Merle Haggard, the country star, fall in love with her. There's a great story behind that. I think he followed her around like a little puppy dog. She's like, oh, he's just like my friend. Um, but, uh, wasn't really, you know, uh, people, many people thought they might be having an affair and she was like, no way, you know, I'm married, but he was in love with her and apparently kept a picture of her. And I actually think the cover picture of this book, Storyteller, is a picture of Dolly uh, that Merle Haggard took. Um, you know, she's a woman that likes junk food. She talks about Velveeta and burgers and fries and all the stuff that she loves. And then she became friends with Sly Stallone. And uh, she said, well, he can't sing country, but he sure can't sing 50s rock and roll. Um, but she said that she credits him with making her more health conscious. He was like, Dolly, you got to stop eating this junk. So she's like, you know, I still eat my junk, but I am, you know, I do kind of watch it a little bit. So, um, I thought that was sort of a little funny fact that when she worked with, uh, Sylvester Stallone, he kind of got her to become uh, a little bit more health conscious. Um, I wanted to, play a song about her. She wrote, and again, you know, I think part of the reason that she's so lovable and beloved is that she's so relatable. She wrote a song called The Man. And that song, she said, was about her dad. It was about Carl Dean, her husband. And it certainly reminds me of my father. Um, and she talks about how these men have a ton of confidence to be behind a woman that is getting so much attention. And obviously, you know, as I mentioned, she's the breadwinner, clearly, um, and how they're never threatened and how that's a real man. Again, these are sort of values that people don't, when people think about a strong man, they don't necessarily think it's the quiet guy standing in the corner um, until like maybe you can wrap your head around that the woman that's being really loud with the lampshade on her head and getting all the, sucking all the oxygen in the room is his wife. And he's having a perfectly good time having a quiet chat with, you know, uh, a person in the corner. And when I've read this song, the lyrics to this song, it reminded me of my dad, uh, cause that was very much sort of the, my parents' marriage. My mother was sort of the superstar and my dad would always kind of, but, you know, he would go to the parties and enjoy them, but he certainly wasn't the draw and he was fine with that. And I thought, you know, now I think as an adult in my own relationships, wow, what kind of a well-grounded strong man is that? And again, I thought that it was something that was fairly unique. And then I read Dolly's lyrics and go, oh my God, uh, Dolly's writing about it. And so I want to write this very sweet, I want to play you this very sweet song called The Man by Dolly Parton. I don't know why I like him, 
I just don't know what to do. I don't know why I trust him, I just know his heart is true. I don't know why he's more a man than any man I know. I don't know how I know the man's for real, but I still know. Weary, yes, he must get weary, but he doesn't say. But you can read between the lines that wind along his face. The man has got his memories that he hides inside his arms. And you can see the sadness in the eyes they hide behind. So that was a little of the song, The Man, that was a, a little bit of a tribute to her father um, and her husband. And before I get into, I want to chat, you know, I want to share a little bit more about uh, fun little facts about her personal life and things that she's accomplished in her life. Um, and also, um, just want to share a few more quotes because they are so profound. You know, we did a show on Bob Marley, and I think in that she shares a lot. You know, these are artists that uh, they speak truth through their music, but also through uh, their words um, that aren't set to music. And if you look at a lot of the quotes, you're like, that's something that Rainer Maria Rilke, the philosopher, could have written, you know, because they are so true and they apply to so many of our uh, life conditions today. But I want to find some of her great quotes. And one of them, which I think is a really cute one, um, and so true. She says, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. Um, and I think that's very true. And uh, she says, um, 
Um, she says, you'll never do a lot unless you're brave enough to try. Find out who you are and do it on purpose. I have to not harden my heart because I want it to stay open. Of course, this is sort of funny. If I see something sagging or bagging or dragging, I'll get it nipped, tucked, or sucked. And I love this one. I don't like to give advice. I love to give people information because everyone's life is different and everyone's journey is different. I love that. I'm often asked for advice. You know, I'm a venture capitalist and I get asked so often for advice about starting companies. And most of my colleagues are very happy to talk about uh, patterns. And we're very big on pattern matching in venture capital and uh, talk about what's the best way to get to, you know, this uh, milestone or product market fit, or are you bitten on the team or the product? And I mean, I always start out with saying, you know what, uh, I think, um, advice is temporal and everything is different. And as soon as I give you a piece of advice, somebody's going to go out and do the opposite and be successful. Um, and so I think that you can tell these stories and you can share what has worked. Uh, but I, th I don't think, uh, I personally don't like to be prescriptive and say you need to do this, uh, this way because time is, everything is a function of time. And again, I think this is wisdom that comes from her. It comes from the mountains. It comes from them being kind of salt of the earth people. Um, I want to see if I can find a few more quotes. She says, we cannot direct the wind, but we can adjust the sails. Storms make trees take deeper root. Uh, I think I mentioned this one before, but it's a goodie. I was always a junk food person, still am. Um, let's see some good ones. She's got so many. I mean, you can literally Google them and there are like dozens and dozens and dozens on the internet and they're all pure gold. Um, and they all either have some wisdom in them, share, you know, a truism like, hey, I consider, well, she says, actually, she says, I do, I think I said she doesn't consider herself a feminist. She says, I am for women's rights, but you won't find me marching. Um, or something where she's really talking about substance. She's not, she's not like running out with, you know, and screaming. She's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure that women are paid more. I'm going to go fight for, for me to get paid more, uh, versus, uh, you know, uh, maybe doing something for show. Um, and I think, you know, before I go into kind of little fun facts about her, I just, wanted to share, um, you know, I just think about what makes her so iconic and so important and so relatable besides the fact that she's produced this amazing body of music. And uh, like I mentioned, she's interesting to look at. Um, and I think I said it earlier, she sings a kind of soul music that speaks to really all of us. Um, and in that way, I think it's not just a personal thing. It's influenced so many generations of songwriters um, and has really transformed country music um, and lots of different genres of music, right? I was just looking at my notes and she also had a disco song. Uh, we did a show on Studio 54 and there was a song that she um, recorded, which I think was called Baby I'm Burning, which hit number 15 on the disco charts and was played at Studio 54, which she used to go to. And I completely they actually had a party for her there. And she's like, I loved it. She's like, I got to hang out with Calvin Klein and Andy Warhol and Steve Rubell, that young man. And I just, I was laughing because I'd completely forgotten that Dolly Parton used to hang out at Studio 54. Again, it just speaks to her universality. Um, 
she's relatable because she's over the top. She's colorful. She's out there. And sometimes that gives you the courage to be out there, but it also kind of tells you, well, okay, maybe I can wear that blue, blue eyeshadow. It's not as far as Dolly Parton, but I could probably get away with wearing that. And she comes from a humble background. That helps a lot of us, right? She's connected to her mountain roots and she shares those insights, that wisdom, those struggles. Um, and she touches on all of these things um, as a songwriter. She also comes across, although I think she is a steel magnolia and strong as heck, and I would not want to get into it with her, she comes across as lovable. You want to protect her. She comes across as vulnerable, funny, down to earth. Um, and yet she's obviously extremely strategic and extremely shrewd and has made a lot about these, a lot of these moves, these power moves in her life, uh, seeking her own counsel, not listening to the men around her. Um, she writes from realness, right? About her own life, her mom, her dad, the mountains, the dogs, the cats, the corn cob, uh, you know, doll, the patchwork quote, the husband. Um, and uh, she's, it doesn't matter how humble the subject matter is, it becomes profound when she gets a hold of such sincerity and, uh, even her quotes sort of reflect that. Um, but I want to move on a little bit to a couple of things in life. Um, when I was coming of age, the great, the, the songs that, you know, I was a child, I would say Islands in the Stream and Nine to Five were kind of like the two big uh, songs. And of course, Islands in the Stream became, you know, sort of big because of uh, the duet with uh, uh, Kenny Rogers. And I think it's been, sung and sung and sung over and over and over again. Um, I'll just play a little bit of it for you. Just a, such a great song. Baby, when I met you, there was peace on I set up to get you with a fine tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going on. You do something to me that I can't explain. Hold me closer and I feel no pain. Everything in my heart, we got something going on. Tender love is blind, it requires a dedication. On this love, we feel, needs no conversation tonight. Making love, I am in the street, that is what we are. No one in between, how can we be wrong? Sail away with me to another world And we rely on From one lover to another Love and we got no way out, and the message is clear. 
going to play that but i ended up just grooving to it because i do remember when the song had heavy airplay and i remember them both singing it and of course i thought of it as sort of adult contemporary but listening to it now i'm like that's a really great song so i'm either getting old or it was an amazing song uh, or maybe it's both but all right want to throw out a few dolly facts before we sort of round this out um, you know, she's been, I'd mentioned she'd been in a bunch of movies, um, a, a lot of movies. Um, gosh, uh, nine to five was one movie she was in, um, best little whorehouse in Texas, steel magnolias, of course, rhinestone. Um, there were so many movies. She did also all these Christmas specials on TV. I do don't know if it's a found memory or a manufactured memory rather, but I do remember, um, I think, like ads for Dolly's Christmas or whatever. So we would do the, and she would do these specials on TV. Um, in 1984, she got her Hollywood, uh, her walk of fame star. Um, and, uh, you know, she spent the eighties doing movies, the nineties, she went back to sort of her country roots because she was experimenting in the seventies and eighties with like different styles, particularly in the late seventies and eighties. And, um, in the 1990s, she kind of went back to her country roots. And then sort of when she hit the 2000s, it was kind of like she'd hit icon status, right? Um, and uh, had sort of now has become kind of the godmother of uh, not just Miley Cyrus, but sort of everybody uh, in certainly in country and kind of when you think of bluegrass and folk and all of that, all those genres, related genres, uh, but also in just as kind of a national treasure and a general kind of music icon. Um, 
she's had these very long friendships with other female country stars, Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette. Um, her songs have been re-recorded by everybody from Chris Christopherson to Tina Turner, Linda Ronstadt, uh, Glenn Campbell, Whitney Houston, of course, uh, I Will Always Love You, made very famous uh, with The Bodyguard, um, uh, RuPaul, uh, Leanne Rimes, Willie Nelson, The White Stripes, Joan Osborne, Sinead O'Connor, uh, Nora Jones, Shania Twain, the list goes on and on and on. Um, again, it gives you a little bit of insight into uh, the impact that she's had. Um, you know, the movie Nine to Five, uh, well, she also did that and wrote this song because she wanted to give a little bit of insight into uh, working people and what working life was like. And again, her music is coming from this kind of place of real authenticity. We talk about that a lot. Uh, people talk about being authentic, you know, and sometimes I just don't understand what they're talking about because uh, I don't know if being authentic is just a way of, you know, an excuse for people to kind of vent them, you know, vent and say whatever they want. But I think Dolly's place of authenticity is kind of a universal. It doesn't come from a selfish place. And you feel that it is about kind of the condition. It's the way that Shakespeare wrote. It's about the human condition. And so she writes about working people in nine to five um, and her sense of humor, the tongue in cheek uh, piece comes out. She wrote a song about PMS called PMS blues. Um, actually see if I can find the lyrics. They might be funny to read. Um, um, so she clearly, nothing is off, uh, limits. Um, she also sort of talks about, um, uh, you know, that, you know, she was a tabloid, she was in the tabloids a lot and she, uh, really loved tabloids, um, and says that she loved seeing herself in tabloids and, uh, actually just found the lyrics to PMS blues. And I just want to see if it's worth reading uh, or I'll just read a couple of the lines because it's funny and uh, let me read what she says about it well somebody had to write a song called PMS blues when I did I thought I'll just cover every emotion that women go through then when that PMS part's over comes the menopause how we make these poor old men and our kids suffer you guys are never going to get any rest I sing this song on my shows. It always gets a belly laugh when I do. The guys love it because I point the finger right at us women. I pretend that I am PMSing on some guy on the front row. And that gets a big laugh too. And here's some of the lyrics. Eve, you wicked woman, you done put your curse on me. Why didn't you just leave that apple hanging in the tree? You make us hate our husbands, our lovers, and our boss. Why I can't even count the good friends I've already lost. Because if PMS blues, PMS blues. I don't even like myself, but it's something I can't help. I got those God my almighty slap somebody PMS flus. Most times I'm easygoing. Some say I'm good as gold, but when I'm PMS, I tell you, I turn mean and cold. Those not afflicted with it are affected just the same. You poor old men didn't have to grin and say, I feel your pain. PMS blues, PMS blues. You know, you must forgive us or we care not what we do. I got those can't stop crying, dishes flying, PMS blues. But you know, we can't help it. We don't even know the cause. But as soon as this part's over, then comes the menopause. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. We're going to always be a heap of fun like the devil taking over my body. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Everybody's suffering, huh? But a woman had to write this song. A man would be scared to, lest he be called a chauvinist, just fall victim to those PMS blues. 
You know, we'd kill for less than that, PMS blues. You don't want to cross my path because a pit bull ain't no match for these teeth that clench in fluid retention, head is swelling, can't stop yelling, got no patience, I'm so hateful, PMS blues. Premenstrual syndrome, got those moods of swinging, tears of slinging, nothing fits me when it hits me, ranting, raving, misbehaving, PMS blues. It's the only time in my life I ever think about wishing I'd been a man, but you know that only means one thing. If I'd been a man, I'd be somewhere right this very minute with some old cranky, nagging, ragging, hateful woman with those old PMS blues, PMS blues. I don't want to talk about it. We both could do without it. Got those treat? Your kid's bad? Don't you talk back? Gone ballistic, unrealistic, awful lowdown bitch to be around? PMS blues. I didn't mean to read the whole song, but reading the lyrics again, I just completely was like, this is universal. It's hilarious. It's universal. She's so smart and so sharp. Oh my goodness. Um, she writes songs about PMS. Um, another fun fact. Ooh, before I forget, this is important. She has tattoos. This was something I did not know. And if you look for it in pictures, there's actually one that you can see between her breasts, but she apparently wears long sleeve shirts because she's got tons of tattoos and she's like, wouldn't you like to see it? But I don't, they say that there are pictures existing of her tattoos, but I don't know if anyone's seen them. I'd be interested in hearing what they are, but the one that you can see that sometimes shows up in pictures is a little red. It looks like a birthmark uh, between her breasts, but had no idea that's why she wore long sleeves. And that makes me love me more, love her more that she has, P uh, sorry, that she has PMS, that she has PMS too, but that she has tattoos. Um, another thing that I thought was very interesting coming from the Smoky Mountains in Appalachia and um, you know, people of the earth, she's got a clairvoyant streak in her family. And she says that came from her mother's side. So I loved hearing about that and uh, that Carl and her, this wonderful model for a marriage where we all get our space. Um, they don't call each other by their names uh, because she thinks it's impersonal. They call each other kid and dad and other things among others. But she says it's just so impersonal to call each other by our first names. So we don't. And, um, you know, uh, it's again, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record with saying that my mother has often said freedom is the key to a strong marriage, freedom and independence. And so I really appreciated it. So um, she's been the fairy godmother to many um, and uh, has really just sort of been an inspiration uh, to so many folks, uh, not just Ma Miley Cyrus. And so, you know, I, I was going to end by playing Jolene, which I'm going to do. But I wanted to also end by saying, you know, when we decided to kind of just do a Dolly Parton um, uh, show, I, I had bought this book, Storyteller, um, a couple of years ago when it first came out. And uh, I was just really taken with the pictures and some of the lyrics and the stories. But then I didn't look at it. I kind of put the book aside and real look, life took over. And I just thought, you know, I just really like Dolly Parton as a human being. And I like her sense of humor and who she is. But in preparing for the show, I started to go deep and read the lyrics um, about whether it's PMS or old folks home or the way that she writes songs or the code of many colors. And it really, it just expanded my perception and mind and affinity for her. Um, and I just, you know, I just thought, what a sensitive, beautiful soul. I mean, I knew that, but in really kind of taking the lyrics in and realizing how much I had in common with her viewpoint. Um, I just thought, 
my God, this woman is also universal. And this is why she's so relatable and so lovable and why she's beloved um, by so many. And so this was actually a little bit of a journey for me in going through this. And um, I feel honored that I had the opportunity to actually do this research and get even more familiar and Dolly fan for life. Now I plan on if she ever goes on tour, getting tickets and being there. If I go down to uh, anywhere where she is, I'm assuming Nashville and she happens to be playing. I will go to the museum Dollywood, but I am a tried and true fan. Um, I always liked her before. I don't know whether I've gone to see her, but um, now that I understand who the person is um, and then seeing the music through the lens of who she is. Uh, she's got a lifelong fan in me. So I hope that this was an entertaining, um, unstructured, you know, we go unstructured because so much interesting stuff comes out rather than having a formal outline, um, especially in conversation. Conversations should not be structured, uh, even if it's just one person doing the conversing. Um, I uh, definitely, you know, feel uh, in some way this was serendipitous that I got a chance to do this. So um, I feel grateful too that that I had the opportunity to research and, and go into this deeper. But uh, from one Dolly fan to another, happy 4th of July. And I hope that everyone had a great one and uh, raising a glass to Dolly Parton. And we will go out with Jolene. <laughs> Jolie, Jolie, Jolie.
Jolene, please don't take it even though you can.